Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to the segment where we're talking to what we think are some of the best healthcare venture investors globally. And I'm super excited to be chatting with Darshana. Darshana is the managing partner of Catalyst Health Ventures. Darshana, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. You're very welcome. This is fun. Uh, Again, to give the audience a little bit of perspective of why we're having this interview. I mean, we looked at well over 200 venture firms that are active investors in the healthcare space. Uh, Catalyst Health Ventures really stood out to us handful of not only their portfolio, their approach, their investment thesis, the, the portfolio development tools that they have, really impressive. So I'm, I'm happy that we have this opportunity to interview you and uh, getting into some of those questions about what makes you so unique. And so before we jump into thesis, portfolio, et cetera, uh, can you help the audience understand who is Catalyst Health Ventures? Sure. Um, so Catalyst Health Ventures is a Boston-based, actually we're right outside of, outside of Boston in Braintree, Mass. Um, we're a venture fund that invests in early stage medical technologies. Um, we're two managing partners, Josh Phillips and myself, and we started investing together in 2008 um, as Catalyst Health Ventures. So that was kind of the founding of the firm. Uh, prior to that, Josh was investing in the predecessor fund, um, and I joined him uh, for in 2008. So we started investing together then. Uh, we typically invest in medical devices. Um, we're typically early stage. You know, we can invest anywhere from seed stage to series B, um, but rarely invest in sort of revenue stage companies, if ever. Um, and we tend to stick with the company through to exit. So. We're not so while we start our relationship with the company at the early stages, uh, we continue to maintain our ownership in the companies through to exit. Um, and we typically lead, uh, we typically take board seats, um, and uh, we have a pretty concentrated portfolio. So we'll pretty we'll do about eight to ten companies uh, per fund. Interesting. Well, I'm just curious. Uh, what's, what was the, ba- is there a backstory about why this fund started? Um, yeah, so my partner, Josh, um, you know, as I said, had been investing uh, prior to the founding of Catalyst Health Ventures uh, in a predecessor um, in, in investment vehicle. Um, and he had invested in, in tech, pharma, um, and med tech. And through his experiences, had sort of come to realize that med tech is an, is an area that is not only underserved, but has massive opportunity. Um, and that was an area that sort of he wanted to focus on, um, you know, moving forward with, with the new fund. Um, and so he and I joined forces, um, you know, I was at the Kennedy School and I at Harvard and um, I came, you know, came in to meet with him and we sort of joined the, you know, joined him and we um, started this fund that is purely focused uh, on med tech. Um, so that's sort of the evolution of, of our strategy, uh, if you will. Um, so, you know, we found that medical devices, if you look around in healthcare, around the healthcare sector, there's few and far investors that actually invest in medical devices. Um, you know, a lot of times you'll hear that, you know, it's not uh, an area that VCs want to focus on because it's hard to make money. And, you know, all of that is, is somewhat true. Uh, but we believe that, you know, we sort of have defined a strategy that works for us um, and have been fairly 
consistent and dedicated to the space uh, for the last 10 years. Interesting, really interesting. Well, and I, I kind of want to highlight that point a little bit and jump directly into your investment thesis because uh, uh, maybe you can expand on this, this last point on medtech because it seems like your portfolio really does gravitate a lot towards medical devices, especially what seems like catheter-based solutions uh, and, uh, uh, and more also as well towards the cardiovascular or solutions that uh, revolve around cardiovascular care. And I'm just curious, uh, can you highlight on this and why is this your approach and why is this particular your investment thesis? Sure. So, you know, when you finesse our strategy down to the real core of what we do, um, we like to invest in what we call mechanical solutions for mechanical problems. Um, and so what that means is, you know, we're looking for large unmet needs in healthcare. So, you know, sort of not niche issues, but big problems, cardiovascular disease, oncology, you know, pain. These are sort of big global healthcare issues. And we're looking at mechanical solutions. Uh, so engineering type devices, technologies that are therapeutic in nature. So we're looking to, to solve these big healthcare issues with engineering type solutions. And the reason we do that, uh, or we like that strategy is because we understand um, the technical risk in these, in these devices. Um, so if you think about therapeutics at one end, you know, drug discovery and development, there's a lot of science risk. Um, and there's a lot of unknowns at the early stage, you know, is the molecule going to work in humans is a question that is really answered after many, many long clinical trials. Um, and the way the molecule works in, in animal models is um, not always reflective of how it's, it's going to perform in, in humans. But when you look at, you know, specifically certain types of medical technologies, um, if the device works in, in animal models, works in a dog, um, there's a very, because it's an engineering type device, um, there's a very high likelihood it's going to work in the same way in humans. And so we try to to either eliminate or significantly minimize the science risk um, in the types of technologies that we invest in. But at the same time, we want the upside of therapeutic devices, so therapeutic solutions. So we don't typically like devices that are just going to be incremental changes, um, you know, a slightly better imaging solution, you know, a slightly better uh, you know, diagnostic type device. We're looking for therapeutic devices that are going to be transformative and, and significantly improve patient outcomes. I like that. Uh, I like that approach, the mechanical solutions for mechanical problems. It makes perfect sense. And it, I think it really is a testament, you know, given both your background, being able to identify that sweet spot. I mean, you worked in pharmaceutical, you worked in therapeutic startups, you worked for the United Nations, you've written several publications, you have several degrees from a variety of different states. I mean, it's super impressive. And I think uh, um, you have that unique insight that can really identify those, those companies that fit that sweet spot in that mold of both right. disruptive and mechanical in a sense. Right. And you asked about cardiovascular solutions. So we, we are not specifically wedded to, to any sector within healthcare as such. Uh, but if you think of the types of unmet needs, you know, 
in cardiology, there's a lot of structural heart issues, you know, valves that don't work or, um, you know, there's a lot of holes in the heart. I mean, there's things that are mechanical in nature that can only be fixed with the mechanical solution. And I like to give this, it's a pretty simplistic example, but if you have a hole in the heart, there is no drug that can fix that. You need, you need a mechanical solution. And yet, uh, you know, the outcome for the patient can be dramatically improved. So those are the types of, you know, within oncology, again, that's been a domain for pharma and drugs for the longest time. But what we're looking for is, you know, devices um, that can address sort of uh, areas of, of unmet need where, where drugs wouldn't work. Um, so for example, we invested in, in a device um, that is an early diagnostic tool for ovarian cancer. And the problem with ovarian cancer is that ovaries are in a, in a part of the body that is inaccessible. So it's, it's, it's a problem of access. If you can get a cell sample, you can diagnose the disease, but it's really hard to get, get the cell sample. Um, and so again, that we, we see that as a mechanical problem that can be addressed with a tool or a device. Really interesting. Well, I, I actually, that, that's a great segue because um, you know, one of the things that seems like a challenge for everybody is healthcare seems so vast. There's mm -hmm. so many different verticals and directions that you can go. How do you filter this down? I mean, you, you talked a little bit about being in the unmet needs, but are you looking at specific diseases, chronic conditions, you know, the most popular, you know, most, uh, uh, most prevalent uh, issues that exist across mm -hmm. uh, patient populations? Like, how do you filter this down? Yeah, no, you're, you're, you're very, very right about this. I mean, healthcare is a vast area and there's so many unmet needs to be, to be looked at and to be addressed. Um, we sort of, you know, in obviously there's a number of criteria and, you know, like most investors will say within the general healthcare med device sector, we're pretty open. You know, if we see a really good solution, um, in a specific disease area that we haven't looked at before, we'll certainly consider it uh, because we have that type of an open investment thesis. But in general, we're trying to narrow down, um, you know, where the burden to the healthcare system is the highest. You know, so again, when you look back at, you know, all of those sectors within healthcare, you know, cardiovascular disease, I mean, that's a huge burden to the healthcare system. Um, cancer is a huge burden to the healthcare system. So we're looking to um, basically address those areas because what happens is when you're addressing things that are a big burden to the healthcare system, your regulatory path becomes easier. Reimbursement becomes easier um, because you are providing that, you know, major therapeutic benefit as well as um, you know, benefit to the, to the payer system. So, you know, the other aspect of, of what we look at is every, every technology that we invest in must significantly improve patient outcomes, but must also reduce cost to the healthcare system. Um, and so we don't, we're, we're not trying to bring to market solutions that are going to be three or four or five times the cost of, you know, current standard of care. Um, so we're looking at every company with both of those filters or lenses, if you will. And then sort of the, the other aspect is, you know, 
at the end of the day, we are VCs and, and we have to make money. And so where is the interest uh, for the strategic acquired, acquirers? You know, where, are, where is our highest likelihood of exiting a company? Um, so, you know, part of what dictates which, which companies that uh, we invest in are, you know, are their buyers in that sector? Are there active buyers in that sector? Do they pay up for, um, you know, uh, breakthrough solutions? Are they willing to invest early? Are they willing to, to invest and acquire companies sometimes even before FDA approval? Um, so those are all the factors that we're looking at. Uh, and then when you combine all of those factors, really the areas that you land on um, tend to be cardiovascular disease, tend to be cancer, tend to be these types of high burden um, sectors. Makes sense. And I think that's one of the most challenging things, especially as a venture investor in healthcare, is it's really difficult to zero in and focus on what is right. And it really does take a handful of categories and pieces to align perfectly to, to validate an investment thesis. And so it's, 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 it's interesting, your approach. Uh, you know, you, you go at the earliest stages and then also follow companies through even to the exit. And I'm, I'm curious, when you look at a healthcare company, are you looking at moonshots or are you looking at something that's practical that works within the healthcare ecosystem? You know, if you examine medical technology, the med device sector, there really aren't moonshots. You know, those, you know, $2 billion, $3 billion exits, they don't typically happen in med devices. Um, I'd call it a very steady sector where, you know, some of the biggest exits are somewhere in that billion dollar range. Those are the, the biggest exits. Um, the typical medtech exit is somewhere in the 250 to $500 million range. Uh, and, you know, the value of the company is, is, is driven entirely by sort of clinical evidence, you know, demonstrated clinical evidence in, in human clinical trials. So, you know, when I think about moonshots, I kind of think about tech companies or, you know, um, uh, CRISPR technologies, things that are going to take 30 years to, to ever come to market and, and make a real tangible difference to patient outcomes. Uh, now, those are very important. Don't get me wrong. You know, it's, it's important to do those, um, you know, fundamental path-breaking type um, solutions and invest in them. But for medical devices, it is typically solutions that, you know, will come to market much, much sooner, certainly within five to six years of first investment. Um, there are shorter regulatory paths, shorter clinical path. Um, and, but you do need to demonstrate, you know, clinical evidence for the company to be acquired and human clinical evidence. Um, so, you know, by that definition, I, I wouldn't call them moonshots. Uh, however, I would certainly describe them as sort of transformative solutions that, you know, that are going to transform um, that particular disease state uh, or, or healthcare in some way. Interesting. No, it makes sense. And it, it, when we talk about moonshots, especially healthcare being how rigid it is, you know, it, you can't just throw a product and mess up the ecosystem and expect that everyone's going to fall in line. There's patient risk, there's regulations, 
there's workflows that can't change. Exactly right. And when you know when you use words like sort of disruptive solutions, you know, mm. it's it, you have to be a little careful using that in healthcare because you you really don't want to disrupt sort of the the you know current uh, standard of care too much. You know, you want to find solutions that are going to fit into the current clinical paradigm and yet make a huge impact on patient outcomes. And so, you know, that's the lens with which you have to look at, at these solutions. Interesting. It's, it's, it's interesting how you, and you talked about it a little bit earlier, that you kind of look at those products that are kind of that blend of both mechanical solution, but have that therapeutic mm -hmm. angle. Can you talk a little bit more about this? Because I feel like that is that kind of that borderline shift between a product that is not just a great tool, but something mm -hmm. that really does improve the workflow of a mechanical problem. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, you know, obviously best answered with examples. Um, and, you know, I'll, I'll highlight one of our one of the companies um, in our, in our current new fund. Um, it was actually the first investment we made out of this new fund. Uh, it's a company called Conformal Medical. And what Conformal does is um, they have a um, technology, a device that closes off the left atrial appendage, uh, which is sort of an, an opening, a vestigial uh, opening in the heart. Um, and pe for patients who have atrial fibrillation, um, blood tends to collect and pool in that opening. And then the, and there's clot formation, which clots break free, go up to the brain and cause stroke. So massive problem. Um, a huge, huge market. There's an enormous number of people, um, not just in the U.S., but globally that suffer from atrial fibrillation and who have a very, very high risk of dying of stroke. Um, and so we look at this as a mechanical problem. You got this opening that is the site of clot formation. If you can close it off, then you don't form the clots and you, you're basically eliminating the the origin of the clots, if you will. Um, and that's exactly what Conformal does. Now, it's not the first solution in the market to do this. There, there, are, there is at least one product that is commercial in the space, but uh, Conformal is just a much better tool. Um, and so, you know, this is where our thesis around mechanical solutions comes in. You know, if you can close off completely that opening, um, then you can, you know, your risk of, of, of clot formation and, and stroke is reduced greatly. So it's a mechanical solution to a mechanical problem. Um, and, you know, from a patient experience and a clinical experience pers perspective, there's many, many advantages to the conformal um, solution. Uh, it's, you know, it's easier to place, it's easier to, to deploy, um, you know, I won't go into all of those, those details, but it's, it's, it's a better solution uh, for the patient. So that's the type of technology that, you know, um, that, that we're attracted to. It's, it's, you know, going to massively change the outcome for the patient, and yet it's a, yet it's a very simple device um, that does the trick. Uh, and from a um, sort of evidence perspective, you know, why we invested when we did. Well, we looked at the animal data, looked great. 
And if you can, you know, accomplish this procedure in large animals, um, there's a very high chance it's going to work in humans because again, it's a mechanical solution. Um, so that's that's an example, and that's how we think. No, it it definitely makes sense, and it's um, it's 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 an interesting approach. I, I'm curious. Because one of the things that I thought was most interesting about you and your fund is that, that really big focus on mechan or medical devices. And I'll, like you mentioned in the very beginning, a lot of people don't touch a space. It's, it's difficult. It's, it's really hard. And uh, you have to have a, a pretty solid understanding of, you know, a variety of different types of chronic conditions or any type of issues that, uh, and how to work through that with mechanical solution. I mean, that's, that's impressive. But I, I'm just curious because a lot of what everyone seems to be focused on is the software aspect, the, more of a digital therapeutics. And I, uh, what is your thought process on, uh, and you kind of already highlighted the importance earlier mm -hmm. with the ovarian cancer example, and I think that's great, but what is your general thoughts on, uh, you know, the, the uh, traditional therapeutics, whether it's drugs or medical devices versus, you know, the digital therapeutics that we're seeing? Yeah, so, you know, I think venture investors develop expertise in, in, in areas, right? I mean, there are plenty of venture investors, my friends in the Boston area that are experts at, at investing in drugs and molecules, where, you know, that would not be an area, you know, where I see a lot of pure science risk, they see a lot of opportunity. Um, we have a lot of, you know, digital health companies and that's sort of a, a, a sector that is seeing a lot of investment, particularly in recent years. And I think that that makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, as technology advances, I think digital solutions um, for healthcare make a lot of sense. There's a lot of particularly, you know, remote patient monitoring and um, sort of, you know, making patient-centric digital solutions available. Um, is very, very important. Um, and, you know, COVID has demonstrated that more than, more than anything um, today. But again, where sort of the risk that we see in digital health is that, you know, it takes, it, it's, it's relatively easy to develop the solutions uh, and sort of get them launched, but it is very hard to um, get real commercial traction and, and adopters and, and see that sort of large scale adoption. And that's where, you know, we see the risk. Um, we, you know, we'd be, we'd be happy to follow some investors in digital health if, you know, if there's a really good opportunity. Um, but where we see value before others um, and where we see value where others see risk is in medical devices. Um, so, and it, it's hard, you know, you mentioned this, why is most investors are not investing in medical devices? It, it's hard. It's, it's not easy to develop a medical device. It's, there's a lot of development work. There's product risk. There is clinical risk. There is regulatory risk. There is reimbursement risk. There's all kinds of risks. Um, but over the years, we have, um, we have learned to to get comfortable with those risks. We've identified teams that know how to address those risks. And we've, you know, so I think it's just where we've kind of developed our expertise and gotten comfortable and made money, frankly. 
No, it, it makes sense. And I think this kind of goes back to the testament of how vast the healthcare ecosystem is and how that even you're seeing so many different verticals of healthcare products. You also see the same with healthcare venture investors, you know, having expertise in different verticals. And I think uh, it, it makes sense uh, given both your background and the fund that you've created and your experience, how you can identify uh, incredible opportunities within medical devices, which is tough. You, I think you picked the hardest, hardest round to go in uh, healthcare investing, but it's uh, you've, you've proven out the model. You have a fantastic portfolio, so kudos to you. Well, and, and, and on the other hand, there's a lot of opportunity because right. it's an underserved area of investment. There is a ton of opportunity in medical devices. And so we, you know, we, we see that as a, a big advantage in our space where we are not competing over deals. We're not seeing, you know, valuations that are through the roof. Um, so there's a lot of advantages to investing in sort of this underserved, underserved area. Interesting. Well, I want to sh shift gears now to the, the, your more investment portfolio questions. Um, before I jump into specific portfolio companies, I'm just curious, when you invest in a healthcare company, uh, do you think it sometimes can be limiting? You know, if you're working with a particular tool or medical device that caters to a particular category of, you know, cardiovascular care, for example, uh, uh, does that mean it's once you go that direction, everything's off limits in that particular category? Is um, for you, it's different because I know you're a lot of the medical devices are typically built for very specific use cases, so it probably doesn't have as much limiting factor. But do you run into this at all? Um, I will say sometimes, um, but rarely, very rarely. So, you know. Yes, I mean, if we have invested in one LA closure device, are we going to invest in another competitive solution, which is also an LA closure device? No, you know, likely not. Um, but are we going to invest in another technology that reduces the risk of stroke in it with a different technical approach? Sure. You know, are we going to invest in, you know, embolic protection devices that people use again for to minimize this, the risk of stroke? Sure, we, you know, so we may, uh, we certainly, you know, I don't think we haven't run into this issue so far. Um, I don't think we would invest in uh, a competitive solution that is addressing uh, a problem in the exact same way, uh, but we may look at different approaches that address the same problem because fundamentally, you know, we've done the work to determine that it's a good, good uh, space to invest in. And so we've, you know, we've done the market research. We know how many patients there are. We know how the clinicians think. We know what the needs are. And we know what types of solutions are likely to work. And so once we've done all of that research, um, you know, we, and if we find another approach, yes, we may. Interesting. I have a, a follow-up question to that, but I'll save it to after the portfolio question. Uh, you know, you recently, um, one of your portfolio companies now has exited, and I think it's a fantastic success story, both on the side of uh, highlights, not only your ability to identify great opportunities, but also your approach to the ecosystem in general compared to everybody else. And so would you be able to highlight uh, that, that recent success story of uh, one of your portfolio companies? Sure. So I know, you know, based on our conversation earlier, I think you're referring to Envision Medical um, so we had, a, you know, a, a couple of exits in, in, in 2018, 
Um, it was a company called Augmentix, which was a device used in, in prostate cancer radiation therapy, um, which was also a really nice, you know, a, a nice exit and, and a very important clinical solution for patients undergoing prostate cancer radiation therapy. Um, but I think what you're referring to is Envision Medical, which was founded by um, uh, a young woman um, out of Silicon Valley, uh, Sulbi Sarna. She's um, you know, exceptionally talented entrepreneur um, and CEO. And she had an idea that was uh, to diagnose uh, ovarian cancer early in, in women who are at high risk for the disease. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't know if you know anything about ovarian cancer, but um, there, there are a lot of women who are, have the genetic susceptibility um, or have family history that have a very high lifetime risk of developing the disease. And so those women have no current screening or diagnostic solutions. Um, so it's almost like you're, you know, you're a walking time bomb waiting for this disease to happen. Um, if you think about breast cancer, there's, there's mammograms and, you know, for prostate cancers, there's, there's PSA and there's a lot of testing modalities that are available for a number of different cancers. Whereas for ovarian cancer, there are really no good diagnostic solutions that are available today. Uh, and yet there is this defined population of women. You don't have to go looking for them. They are the ones looking for the solution. They're, you know, they're presenting at the OBGYN's office um, and they're asking to be tested. So, you know, we looked at this and we said, okay, uh, this is a big unmet need. Um, there are no good solutions. It is a high, high mortality disease. I mean, if you, you know, if you were diagnosed with ovarian cancer, you have a greater than 85% chance of, of dying of the disease. Um, and there's really no technologies that at the time were even sort of in development. Um, and at the end of the day, when we kind of, when we looked at it, it was, you know, if there was plenty of clinical evidence that if you could get access to cell samples, then you can diagnose the disease because it's like a pap smear. You know, if you, if you have this, these, the sample, um, you can do, you can just look at the cells and you can tell it's cancer. So, but the problem is the ovaries, you know, I said this earlier, the ovaries are in, in, in a part of the body that is, it's very difficult to get to. It's a problem of access. Um, and so Serbi had um, a concept that was a catheter-based um, device that, uh, you know, could be used by, by an OBGYN um, as an outpatient procedure to collect, you know, goes deeper into the anatomy and collect cell samples. Um, and so, you know, on the surface of it, you know, as an idea, as a concept, it made a lot of sense. Um, but at the time when we were diligencing it, there was no prototype. I mean, it wasn't anything other than, you know, the idea and, and some IP filed. So um, we uh, worked with Serbi and we, you know, did a, a, a seed round. And the seed round was essentially for concept development. And, you know, she, again, super talented entrepreneur. She did an exceptional job developing the device and showing us the clinical evidence um, with that first $250,000. We then, you know, led a series A round, you know, completed some sort of completed the product development work, um, did an initial clinical trial. Uh, We then participated in a series B round. 
Um, and so the company had raised it a, a total of 17 million and then it was acquired by Boston Scientific. Once we had um, the device uh, used in the clinic, in a clinical trial, to prove that you can indeed diagnose, uh, appro you know, accurately diagnose cancer in women who are at high risk. So um, it, was a, it was a great trial, great results, and uh, we, we ended up selling that, selling that business in 2018. Impressive. It's, it's impressive that you can visualize uh, that early the need for something like that and, and being able to take a bet uh, in this space. That's hard. That's really difficult. Uh, and for you to see that and realize that all the way to exits is great. And on top of that, you know, one of the things we mentioned earlier is Envision was really struggling with finding any form of capital from anybody. Mm -hmm. Um, and you took that initiative to really support a founder that definitely was probably under, you know, in that category of undeserved or uh, not undeserved, but um, uh, not receiving as much attention as probably should have. Yeah. And, you know, again, you, you always hear this, right? Success stories are sort of 10 years in the making and they're overnight successes. And, you know, the, the real important thing here is that Surbi had been thinking about this problem for years before I met her, you know, for years. And so, you know, exceptionally talented entrepreneurs like her and, you know, others that we've funded have, you know, been working on their ideas for a very long time before they see that first penny in investments. And so they've already sort of in their, in their own diligence and in all the work that they've done, they've kind of talked through a lot of issues. Um, and that's what we saw in Surbi. You know, it wasn't, um, yes, she was a first time entrepreneur and that's always a risk as everybody knows. Um, and women's health in general is sort of a risky area to invest in. Um, and again, so there were those risks. However, what we saw was someone who had um, given a lot of thought into how to address those product development questions, you know, how to think through the regulatory strategy, you know, reimbursement. And we asked her all of these questions. Um, and then at the end of the day, we, you know, our relationship with her was almost a year and a half before we funded the company. So we really got to know her. We got to know the way she thought. We got to know the solutions. We asked a lot of questions. She always came back with answers. And so it was, yes, we wrote that first check, but we also did it after uh, learning a lot about this space. Interesting. Really interesting. Well, I know we got uh, about 10 minutes left, so I, I want to be, we'll, we'll, we'll jump to a few questions. But um, uh, uh, you mentioned this earlier about your approach in um, looking at companies that uh, you don't mind if it's, they take a different approach in solving kind of the same problem. I'm just curious, how do you know when you look at any healthcare category or any healthcare startup, how do you know what is the right solution to say, for example, uh, lower the risk of stroke. Uh, and what is your approach? Because especially when you look at medical devices or any therapeutic products, there are several ways you could solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And they have all different forms of risk level and effectiveness. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, how do you approach that? That seems like really difficult. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. And to be honest, I don't know that we've asked ourselves, ourselves you know, 
you know, why do we, you know, why is this the approach that's going to work? Um, I think it, I think it, it boils down to um, the mechanism of action of the device. And we have to be convinced that the mechanism of action is solid and makes sense. Um, and it is, it is a solution that is easy to deploy or, or relatively easy to deploy. I mean, in card, you know, cardiology, I mean, not, I mean, things are challenging anyway, but that it's relatively easy to deploy. Um, you know, I, I'll give you an example. We invested in, in, um, out of university of Minnesota in a, in a company that is developing a solution for what is essentially right heart failure caused by pulmonary hypertension. And it is a very simple, elegant, you know, a implantable device that we believe is going to fundamentally change this disease state. There is nothing today out there that actually is curative for this disease state. These patients are going to die uh, once they're diagnosed. You know, it's only a matter of time, whether it's six years or eight years or 10 years. You know, perhaps you can manage the disease for a while, but there, is, there are no cures. And when we saw this, when we first saw it, we said, wow, implantable cardiac device. I mean, that is, you know, as high risk as you can get. But the solution is very elegant, very simple, very simple, you know, simple in concept and makes perfect sense. And then what we do is we go out and talk to all the clinicians, the clinicians that know the disease state, that have studied it, researchers who have studied it. And we, for any typical investment, we will talk to as many as 10 or 12 clinicians that are experts in their field. And then we run the solution by them. And, and I remember going out and I met with the um, head of the pulmonary hypertension division at Brigham and Women's. And, and he gave me, this is a very busy guy. He gave me two hours of his time. He was fascinated with the solution. And, you know, everybody that we met said, well, you know, nobody's thought about this approach before, but it makes perfect sense. This company's called Aria, Aria Cardiovascular, by the way. Um, and it makes sense. It should work. Um, and then we looked at their animal data. Earlier I had said, you know, we're looking at the mechanism of action. Does it work in a clinical model? In this case, they have tested it in bovine and cows uh, that, have, that are a natural model for, for this disease state. And it worked. So, you know, we kind of have to take a lot of um, disparate evidence and put it together and fundamentally review this mechanism of action. Does it make sense? Um, and, then make, and then there is a risk that it won't work, you know, in, in the clinic. There's always that risk, but I think we minimize it because of the types of solutions that we invest in. Interesting. It makes sense. Uh, and I don't think that's an easy question to answer either. So <laughs> I, I, uh, I, it's, it's a phenomenal, phenomenal answer. Uh, for you, uh, First off, healthcare industry is notorious for having really long sales cycles. It's impossible to sell to providers. Uh, what is the business model that most medical devices use and how do they actually, you know, what is that approach? What is their method of getting into providers and how are you able to reduce that sales cycle that everyone is, everyone seems to have a challenge to and nobody has a solution for? 
No, you're absolutely right there. And I think one of the challenges that we, we see all the time, and you know, it boils down to opportunity selection. You know, as I said, we do eight to 10 portfolio companies per fund. That's not a whole lot. And there are a huge plethora of sort of med tech, you know, innovations out there to choose from um, and not many investors. So, you know, when we look at, at technologies like, you know, uh, imaging, you know, big image, imaging solutions that require reconfiguration of, you know, uh, hospital sort of rooms and, you know, building out a facility or uh, robotic solutions that are, you know, involve big capital equipment. Um, we hesitate to invest in those because of the long sales cycle. You know, no, it's not just the long sales cycle. If you think about, you know, our strategy, we're looking for early clinical evidence. You know, the very first thing we tell our companies is, let's show that this works in humans. I mean, you know, end of story. We don't have to have the perfect product um, developed until we have shown that the basic prototype works in humans. And then we can do the other product development. Uh, but that's, that approach is really not feasible for solutions or technologies that require big capital equipment. You, you got to build that equipment. So if it costs you, you know, half a million dollars or a million dollars to build something and then test it out, that's a lot of capital. Um, that's, it's a very capital intensive project. And that's not the type of stuff that we tend to invest in. You may have noticed in the past, and this is, you know, prior to 2008, um, you know, we may have done a robotic surgery company. Um, but as we kind of move forward, we're looking at uh, really capital efficient solutions that, that do not have those long sales cycles that are very, very high margin products and where um, you know, typically don't even go through a hospital, uh, you know, sort of system for, uh, for payment. They, and, and where there's a lot of push from the adopting clinicians to actually buy those, those products. Um, and I'll give you examples. I mean, we had one product company that we sold back in 2012 that was a single-use device to remove blood clots. Um, and that device was sold for $9,000 and cost less than $500 to make, and probably in the $200 range is, is my guess. So very, very high margin, single use product um, that is removing these massive uh, life-threatening blood clots where the alternative is a hospital stay for two or three days. And that will cost you $30,000. So, you know, you're fundamentally improving and changing that patient outcome. And yet you're saving money to the system, but also the product is making a lot of money. Um, we had another one uh, company that we sold in 2018 that was a, um, I mentioned a, a spacing device for radiation, uh, patients undergoing radiation therapy for prostate cancer very, very high margin product, single use. You, you know, you implant the device, it's a, basically a biomaterial and it degrades over time and leaves the anatomy intact. So we like those types of products that, you know, where the adoption is driven by 
the the clinicians that use it that that want to use it to to improve their their the the outcomes for their patients um, and that don't have those long sales cycles. Interesting. But it makes sense, and I think um, it's it's fine, finding that sweet spot of ROI, especially for the end user, um, which I think is a uh, is the is the part of that process of shortening that sales cycle. If there's value. It's you know people are going to want to work with you quite quickly. Um, I wanted to address the big elephant in the room, which is the pandemic, mm -hmm. and I'm I'm just curious from your standpoint, how do you think? Uh, the pandemic has changed healthcare, and you know what shifts do you think are going to happen? Um, you know, I've been asked this question before in the in the last six months, and and so there's two perspectives. You know, what's going to change in healthcare, and then what's going to change for us as we look at our our investment strategy and, and thesis. Um, so starting with us, you know, not much. Uh, you know, we are investing in solutions. We've we've fine-tuned and honed our strategy to the point where we, you know, we know where we we want to invest, where our expertise lies, and where we have a good good shot at, at at making returns for our investors. And that isn't going to significantly change. However, as I look at you know the the effects of COVID, you know, people are. They say people are not dying off COVID, but dying with COVID, meaning that, you know, the patients who are most susceptible to dying of COVID have a lot of underlying conditions. And these conditions are, you know, cardiology, they're diabetes, there's, you know, a lot of things that we address already. Uh, and so I, I think that, you, you know, the, the overall focus on improving the general health of the population is going to become even more important and relevant today than it was a few years ago. Um, you know, I think preventive medicine is going to become more important. So we may start looking at a lot of preventive sort of devices. Um, and I think that's just, that's just good sort of solid uh, you know, common sense approach to investing in what is beneficial for healthcare overall. Um, on a, at, a, at a macro scale, you know, what's, I think what's going to change in the U.S. for the healthcare system is, is I think this is where digital health will play a big role. You know, if you don't have to go to the hospital uh, for your checkup, if you can do it, you know, online by Zoom, and I've done it over six months a few times and my kids have done it, that's great. You know, if there are better tools to do the things that that we did uh, at the clinic or outpatient or in the hospitals, if you can do that, do them remote. If if there are at home sort of diagnostic tests that can be self administered, um, you know, those are all things that hopefully we'll see more investment from from the VC community and in general from from the healthcare system. Um, so I think those are all going to be, at the end of the day, positive developments um, that fall out of the COVID crisis. I hope people realize that it's important to, to have um, diagnostics, prevention, um, and general, you know, better healthcare overall to kind of minimize the impacts of these types of viruses that are sure to show up again. This is, this is not the first time. Interesting. And I think uh, also kind of going back to your thesis as well, mechanical problems aren't going away. They're still there and they still need mechanical solutions, you know. And um, 
And even more so because the population is aging and, you know, aging demographics, you're going to continue to need mechanical solutions. Drugs have uh, a very, very important role to play, but there's also sort of a lot of, lot of uh, unmet needs today that can't be addressed with drugs. Mm. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, it makes sense. And I think uh, it's, it, it's kind of, Echoing what you, you talked about, it's, it's really a wake-up call for, for everyone to really think hard about the, the healthcare ecosystem and, um, you know, uh, shine light at some of those tools that make healthcare better. And I think that's net positive. Um, the unfortunate part is we had to go through a pandemic to have that realization, I think. And, um, but with that, I wanted to, I know we're a little bit over time. So again, I really appreciate Darshana taking the extra time to do this. Uh, I wanted to really highlight the unique aspects of your fund because not only you have an impressive background, you have an impressive knowledge and skill set in helping a portfolio companies, but you're actually pretty active in portfolio development. I mean, you gave an example pretty early on and it's not just, it's providing guidance, support, it's access to networks. Uh, can you comment on, on this? Sure. Um, you know, I will say that, um, over the years, I've learned that, you know, we get involved where we are needed, not where we are not needed, you know, and we have, we're not afraid of it. You know, we're not afraid of rolling up our sleeves and, and getting in and helping uh, founders think through issues or make connections or even at times sort of play a, a role within the company. Um, but we don't, we're not always required to do so especially when we invest in teams that have founded multiple companies and, you know, kind of know the playbook and they know exactly what needs to be done. And they, in fact, they don't want or need our involvement. And that's perfectly fine with us as well. We'll show up for once a quarter board meetings and, and good enough. Um, so we have both, you know, both heads of the spectrum. And I will say, so recently we've done two companies in our new, in our new fund that, you know, both deals that closed in the last four months. You know, at the one end of the spectrum is a company called Adacor. I think you had um, asked me about that company in, in the questions. And it's a, it's a company based out of Mountain View, California. So really hard for me to get involved, <laughs> first off, just because of the distance. Uh, but also the team is, you know, exceptionally experienced in the space. Um, they have a, you know, dramatically improved solution for pace, you know, pacemakers, uh, which have been around for decades, of course, as you know. Um, and so, you know, really cool technology uh, and very, very experienced founding team. Um, we show up for board meetings and, and that's great. Um, on the other hand, you know, we have a company here in, in the Boston area where, you know, it's, it's one founder out of MIT, first time founder, um, very, very lean team. It's essentially her and, and one technician. And so they need the kind of support that, you know, that, that we can provide, you know, they'll take any help from us. Uh, and so, and we're, and we're willing to do that. Uh, and again, that is, you know, a, a technology that delivers drugs directly to the pancreas to for, for pancreatic cancer and you know exceptionally bright talented founder 
but they don't have that whole kind of support structure with, with business development and, you know, other types of, of help. And, and so we get involved. Um, so it, it really depends on what the company needs and, and we're willing to do whatever the company asks of us. Uh, so we'll, we'll be involved if they want us to be and we'll kind of step back and, and just watch uh, if that's what is required of us. That's great. No, I think it's having that uh, uh, that approach is 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 fantastic, and it's really founder friendly. Mm-hmm. Um, well, with that, Darshana, this was fantastic. Uh, before I close out, did you have anything other closing remarks you want to make? Ask the audience anything. Uh, no, this has been a lot of fun. I enjoyed the conversation, and um, you know, I just say to the founders that that will eventually watch this is we have a very very I'll call it open door policy. We love to hear from, especially first time founders and and folks that may be overlooked. Um, And, you know, we tend to, one thing we like to say about Josh and I is, we will read every email. Um, And so, you know, we do very, very few deals, but we will read every email. And so um, we welcome the opportunity to review deals from, from anyone that wants to come to us. Fantastic. Well, with that, Darshana, thank you so much again for doing this. Again, for the audience, why we had this interview, uh, Kellis Health Ventures was one of the most impressive venture investors, healthcare venture investors that we saw globally, well over 200 firms. Uh, And now we know why. I mean, your approach to, which is probably one of the hardest categories, very few people uh, take on what you guys are doing, not only your background and looking in medical devices, but your thesis and looking at how you approach medical devices, understanding where the opportunities are, being able to identify that even before a product is built and seeing success from that, impressive, really impressive. Being a founder-friendly firm, being able to sit on board seats or on the sideline when necessary, we'll be able to step in and help companies from the get-go and every step of the process is is phenomenal. So this, this is why we think, uh, again, you're one of the best healthcare venture investors. This is fantastic. So thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much.